Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm your host, Dr. Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company. All right, well, we've got an excellent crowd here, so I'd like to get us kicked off because I know that we have miles to travel and I want to give both Stephen and Yen plenty of time to talk about their project and, of course, to answer your questions. I am uh, Dr. Will Fenton. I am the Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I suspect that many of you know the Library Company. We were founded by Benjamin Franklin, uh, whom Stephen actually kind of resembles right now. That's nice <laughs> to coordinate that for us, Stephen. Franklinian gentleman. So we, uh, we were founded by uh, Benjamin Franklin in 1731 as a, re as, as, as a subscription library. We have uh, transitioned in the 20th century into being a research library where we support all sorts of tremendous fellows. This year, in fact, we have 55 research fellows that are doing amazing work in our collections. And our fellowship program is something that I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, Dr. Benjamin Rush has a deep um, and important history with the library company. He was a vital member of the institution in its early years. In fact, his son, Dr. James Rush, bequeathed funds for our, our, our Ridgeway building, actually, some time ago. He also acquired one of our early shares, Share 660, in 1791, which he passed on to Sarah Rush when he passed away. And um, a number of his family members have and continue to practice shareholding. And I just want to make a plug for shareholding as a practice for anyone listening here. If you're excited about the library company, you're excited about Benjamin Rush, we actually have a Julia Williams Rush share, share 826, that's currently available. And if you're interested in securing that share or becoming a member in any other way, please get in touch with our chief development officer, Rachel Hammer, rhammer at librarycompany.org. I'll drop her email address in in a little bit. So today we're going to hear about Penn Library's Benjamin Rush Portal, uh, which draws together resources from a number of different institutions, but particularly for our purposes, the Library Company of Philadelphia and Penn Libraries. Uh, many of the materials at the C were digitized as part of a multi-institution project organized by the Philadelphia Area Consortium of Special Collections Libraries. Uh, the short uh, acronym for that is PACSCOL, very fine institution. That grant um, for the health of the new nation, Philadelphia as the Center of American Medical Education, 1746 to 16, 1868, was generously funded by a grant from the Digitizing Hid Hidden Collections Initiative of the Council on Library and Information Resources. And that initiative in turn was supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. So we're all grateful for that support. Special thanks are also due to our co-sponsors of this event at Penn Library. Um, and that includes, in particular, Barbara Cavanaugh, who's definitely in attendance, Mitch Frass, and Hannah Rutledge. Thank you all for your support of this event and for helping us spread the word amongst the Penn community. For our part, the library company is really committed to um, excavating our materials in medical history. And um, we are really excited about the possibility of collaborating with peers like Penn Libraries around projects like this Rush Papers project. Um, we're actually, as of tomorrow, launching our first of a series of innovation fellowships. Um, and we'll be accepting applications for that uh, Francis Johnson Fellowship immediately. But we are actively fundraising right now for five Benjamin Rush Fellowships that will be part of that program. And right now, those Rush Fellowships are slated to launch 
in 2023, 2024, they could launch a lot sooner if we finish fundraising. So if you're excited about that um, and want to support that effort, which will really be integral into um, helping contextualize all the rich materials that you'll see today, um, we encourage you to make a contribution. Um, I'll drop a link into our uh, development online donation form uh, where you can use the special earmark that we created just for Stephen, the Rush Papers Project earmark. Uh, and of course, if you have questions, I would invite you to get in touch with our Chief Development Officer, Rachel Hammer, rhammer at librarycompany.org. So with that, I get to now transition to our uh, lovely speakers today. We have two speakers, Stephen Freed, who is really the catalyst, the stubborn catalyst behind this project, and Yen Ho, who has helped put it into practice. Stephen Freed is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University. He has written seven nonfiction books, most recently, Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father, which was an American Library Association notable book of the year and a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize. A two-time winner of the National Magazine Award, he's been on the staff of Vanity Fair, GQ, Glamour, and Philadelphia Magazine, where he was also the editor-in-chief. And he has written for Smithsonian Magazine, the New York Times, and many others. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife, Diane Ayers, not far from where Benjamin Rush lived. And of course, we're also joined by Yan Ho, a recent or a current graduate student at Drexel University, where she studies library and information science and serves as an intern at the University of Pennsylvania's Biomedical Library. With that, I'm gonna pass it over to uh, Stephen Fried. Thank you. Uh, can you see this? Perfect. Excellent. Uh, thanks very much. And it's great to see um, on the list of people, so many people that we worked with on the Rush book. Um, thank you all. There would be no book if you didn't work uh, with us so diligently and, and uh, so patiently, because uh, I know uh, I can be a little difficult when it comes to not tracking these things down. So there you go. So for the past two years, I've been trying to convince people they should care or care more, certainly care more accurately about founding father, Benjamin Rush. Um, some of you read my book, heard me speech, give a speech, uh, or heard me Zoom. This is actually a picture of me Zooming with a sixth grader uh, talking about the yellow fever epidemic. So no Zoom too small uh, to get the word out about Benjamin Rush, during, especially during COVID. And uh, some of you may have seen me on Twitter uh, where I play an endless game of whack-a-mole uh, with people um, who uh, keep posting this quote. See, this is what happens when I think about these Twitter people who put up this uh, fake Benjamin Rush quote. Um, they drive me so insane. Um, so I, I spend uh, sometimes like an hour a day uh, just trying to get people to stop putting up this quote, uh, which has been um, the, one of the longest running fake quotes um, on the internet. Uh, it's over It's it's over 100 years old, and it was actually first... Um, overturned by Thomas Saz, which is kind of amazing because Thomas Saz, uh, for those of you who know, hated Benjamin Rush, uh, wrote much about how much he hated Benjamin Rush, but at the same time, uh, couldn't believe that this quote was being put out by doctors. Uh, and it's circulated mostly by doctors who think that Benjamin Rush thought there should be a constitutional amendment for them to be able to do whatever they wanted to do. So, um, but mostly uh, what I've been do trying to do is spread the word uh, that to really understand these guys, um, and so much about American politics, medicine, education, philosophy, uh, and, Rush, and race relations, unless you know Benjamin Rush, 
uh, and have really spent some time with his actual work, uh, you really don't know. And, and it's actually been kind of hard to spend time with his work, as, as certainly all the people who worked on my Rush book know. It's very hard to get access to primary materials on Rush. And that's actually on purpose. Um, we don't have time for me to retell the whole story of why Benjamin Rush is uh, not as, as well-known a founder as he should be. Uh, but what I will say is that after he died, um, his family was very concerned about what to do with his papers. And because he had an enormous number of letters from Adams and Jefferson that were very personal to him. He had also written a an autobiography for his children, which they knew would be very controversial. And so when he died in April of 1813 at the age of 67, uh, they really didn't know what to do. And so uh, his widow, Julia, who was only 54 at the time, his second son, Richard, who was uh, becoming a prominent member of the Madison administration, and his poor son, James, who, as, as Will pointed out, did later fund the library company. But at 27, he had to take over his father's business, teach all his classes, and take over his very political job at the U.S. Mint, which they didn't want to get in trouble. So there was a ton of material. They were very afraid for people to find out about it. Um, as On top of it, hundreds of medical lectures. His music was on every possible subject. And um, also a lot of doodles. So the library company has a lovely doodle collection of Benjamin Rush's, uh, which I've had conversations with curators about, about how many of these are Rush's doodles and how many of them are his kids' doodles. So someday a doodleologist will go over these pages and see if they could do it. And this is, um, just so you know, this is the opening page of Rush's controversial uh, autobiography, it Travels Through Life. Controversial mostly because uh, as part of it, he did a, um, a list, of, he wrote down everything he thought about everybody who wrote, uh, who signed the Declaration of Independence and all the generals in the uh, Revolutionary War. And he wasn't always kind. And so this was a time when no one could ever say anything bad about George Washington and the family was very concerned that any of this stuff would come out. Adams and Jefferson, on the other hand, were very concerned that their letters to Rush, which were unbelievably personal, uh, would come out. And Adams said um, he, he, of course, thought that Rush's autobiography uh, should be published, but he said um, he couldn't think of a project that would be more uh, victorious or more patriotic or that would make him shudder anymore. And so uh, all of Rush's writings uh, were hidden away and they were actually divided among his family members. We don't know exactly how. And at different times, different of his kids wanted to publish things and then didn't publish them. And this went on for quite a long time. The, the first inkling we have that people are concerned about this is uh, at the 100th anniversary of the College of Physicians in 1887, uh, Dr. S. Weir Mitchell, very famous doctor from Philadelphia, uh, first raised the issue of how bad it was that people didn't have a chance to read Benjamin Rush's original writings. And in uh, the 100-year um, uh, speeches, he said, um, you know, I, I think it's that it's only just to a great man that we should know all there is to, of him to know. He was too great, too productive, too various, a great word, to lose esteem on account of anything he may have said or written about Washington. So this got people thinking, and suddenly there was a little bit of interest in this. The, the American Medical Association decided to build a statue to Benjamin Rush in Washington as the first doctor to have a statue in Washington to prove that they were interested in using Rush as their, uh, as their, their symbol. Uh, he, he was put on the symbol of the American Psychiatric Association. And S. Weir Mitchell actually went as far as to go in and try to start editing Rush's papers. So one of the earliest papers we have of Rush, which are his translated notes from when he was a Continental Congressman, and his notes dissing Washington and how bad things were at Valley Forge, 
which are very descriptive and used in lots of different places. It's so interesting. These actually came from Dr. Mitchell's article that he did for the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography in 1903. And this is one of the very beginnings of Russia's writings actually getting out there. This is the statue the AMA built. In 1905, the family published a private book of an edited version of Russia's autobiography. They made 50 copies of it. It was just for the family. And so no one had access to any of this material still. And they didn't for another uh, 40 years. And in 1943, the last of the Biddle families who had inherited these materials from the Russians died. All the materials were auctioned at Park Brunet in New York City, 900 lots, the autobiography, all these things no one had ever seen before. What's amazing about this is that there are many things about Benjamin Rush that we only know about because they are in these documents. They are in these, um, uh, in, in the sale documents because no one's seen them again. So part of the reason we're excited about doing a Rush Papers project is not only to make his known papers more accessible, but to try to get the word out that these things that exist somewhere in America, people bought them and have them in their houses. You know, we need them back or at least copies of them because they're important artifacts of America's history, not only of Rush, but they're important ways of tying, the not, creating all the connections between Adams, Jefferson, Washington, all the people Rush knew well. The aftermath of this sale was that this gentleman, Lyman Butterfield, who uh, most of you know, if you know it all, for two reasons, he was the editor of the John Adams Letters, and his son, Fox Butterfield, became a very famous uh, reporter at the New York Times. He was at that time an English professor at FNM, and he was hired to uh, start editing the letters of Benjamin Rush, which were published in the early 1950s by the Philosophical Society. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go through his papers are at the Mass Historical Society, and no one had ever opened. They, they use his Adams papers all the time, but no one had used his Rush papers. So I started digging into them. In fact, that thing I showed you before uh, from the catalog, uh, one of the things that uh, we were looking for of Rush's was a thing where his wife had written about all his worst qualities which we thought was a very funny thing. Um, he had actually done additional research on this, and these are his actual, inter these are his notes from his files, and there are hundreds and hundreds of pages like this that no one's really looked at, but they, they allow you to find out things that aren't in any books. At the same time, um, a, a, a doctor at Johns Hopkins, uh, George Washington Corner, edited the Rush autobiography and the commonplace books. These books came out, that book came out in 1948, and the uh, Letters of Benjamin Rush in 1951. Uh, I don't want to criticize either of these guys for the scholarship they did in 1948 and 1951, but there's no other founding father whose main research was done in 1948 and 1951 and has not been updated since. And this was driven home to me very forcefully when I actually went to look at the pages of the autobiography, which are at the Philosophical Society, and the librarian brought them out, and lo and behold, at the last page was a page that is not included in the autobiography of Benjamin Rush. And we looked it up, and we said, yeah, yeah, it really is, and I wonder how George Washington Corner might have missed that page. And especially since, if you can see the top of the page, it says Billy Grubber. Billy Grubber is the one slave that Benjamin Rush owned. Any, there's hardly any information about William Grubber at all. This paragraph is a little hard to read, but since there's only three paragraphs about William Grubber in all of Rush's writing, it's pretty important. Um, so all I'm saying is that a lot of the work that was done during that time, it's, it, it is time to start doing it again. And um, another important scholar was a guy named Ted Carlson. Ted Carlson's better known because he actually was part of the Manhattan Project. 
But later in his life, he became a psychiatrist that he became fascinated with Benjamin Rush at Weill Cornell Medical Center. He edited Rush's Essays of the Mind and put together a book of his Lectures of the Mind. He also, I found that his material wrote a book about Benjamin Rush and, and medical philosophy that was never published. And it's just been sitting there in a box. Uh, so one of the things that we can get access to. Um, and it turned out that Lyman Butterfield had wanted to write a book about Rush and never got around to it either. These are the opening pages of his book, uh, of his, uh, his, his layout for the book, and raise a lot of important questions about Rush. A couple more things we found out about Rush uh, not that long ago. In, 19, in the, the mid-1970s, this woman showed up at the Rosenbach Museum with a pile of Julia Rush's materials and Benjamin Rush's writings that no one had ever seen before. These are obviously very wonderful pictures taken by Deanne Arbus. Um, and uh, socialite uh, Julia Rush Biddle Williams um, had them in her collection. Some of them she inherited, some of them I think she bought. She gave them to the Rosenbach Museum, bringing them into the fold. And um, that is why uh, the Rosenbach in the late 70s published a very slim, now out of print book called My Dearest Julia, which is Rush's love letters to Julia. And you know, it's interesting when you're doing history, sometimes you forget that whether somebody is, loves their wife or not is an issue that you can't prove until letters like this turn up. So Rush was actually seen as somewhat of a misogynist until these letters showed up very late in the process. So anything that can add to the world of a character changes what we see about them. This is actually Julia's letter explaining why she didn't burn these letters because she burned most of them. But in these letters are John Adams' handwritten letter of condolence after Benjamin Rush died, and even um, a, a piece of her hair. Uh, also, one of the last donations that's been made um, is Julia Rush's letters during the yellow fever epidemic, which are now at the American Philosophical Association. And we've also recently found um, several pictures of Rush that weren't known to exist. This is the earliest picture of Rush. Um, it's very tiny miniature. It's at a small museum in Louisiana. And in the family's collection, two images that were not well known this portrait, which you can see is hanging over the fireplace of these people's house um, in suburban Philadelphia. They also own the watercolor study for uh, the most famous portrait of Benjamin Rush. So um, all these materials and many more are the kinds of things that I wake up at night thinking, why can't people know about this stuff? Why can't they more easily access it? And so that's really what started driving what became this Benjamin Rush portal project. I had known for a while that there are many places that own Rush materials. This is a not that short list of all the places that have substantial holdings of Rush material. And except for Duke University Special Collections and Dickinson Library, none of them are digitized or digitized in any way that is, that is particularly useful. Um, and, you know, equally important to just the digitization is diverse contemporary analysis. The retranscription and interpretation of the writings of all the other major founders is being done pretty much every day. And most of the transcription and analysis of Russia's writing hasn't been updated in over 50 years. Uh, most of it was done in the 40s and 50s, and the world has changed a bit since then. I mean, the world has changed a bit since March. So my goal has been, and um, people from the library company that will remember that when the book first came out, I gave a talk begging for this, that we should start a Benjamin Rush Papers project in Philadelphia as a first step to reclaiming and reinvesting in the city's history, the city's role in the revolution, and making sure the next generations of students, historians, and history buffs can easily access and study the papers of both of our founding Benjamins. And that's really what led to the Portal Project. So the Portal Project um, came about in a kind of a funny, strange way. So I was supposed to give a talk 
Barbara Cavanaugh had been on me for like a year to do a talk at the biomedical library about Rush. And um, finally, we decided we would do it at Kislak and we would bring together uh, Van Pelt Special Collections and the biomedical library. So it's to be in February. As, as you know about American life, a lot of things were supposed to be in February. So um, it got postponed. And with it was supposed to be a small exhibit in the Kislak uh, Center, which, you know, is this place where they would have, you know, a couple of a couple of things. It would not have been a big exhibit, but the talk went online and then the um, the online the exhibit went online. And Yen Ho, who I don't know was in, whether she was going to be involved in the original exhibit when it was going to be three dimensional, uh, was brought in to do a, an online exhibit. And I'm sure that uh, Barbara probably thought she would do a page or two and it would all be very nice and it would go with my talk. And when I looked at Yen's first draft of this thing, it was long, in-depth, fascinating. I mean, besides the fact that she had read my book from cover to cover, which, you know, you always like somebody who's obviously read the book. Um, she really showed an interest in trying to get out materials. And so it occurred to me, you know, I've been talking to Will for a really long time into the library company. What's it going to take? To have, a, to have a real Rush portal. Because in reality, the biggest challenge of Rush is that, um, especially with libraries closed, but it was true with libraries open, a lot of his books are not available. They are all out of print. And people constantly quote Rush from secondary sources and tertiary sources in a way that is really, it, it's, it's also, one, it's not historically a good idea. But two, I feel like we've been in a time where people are really revisiting so many aspects of history, not just race but we're really revisiting what the content, what the context is of the things we are quoting when we write about history. And there's nobody whose quotes are taken more out of context than Benjamin Rush's. In many cases, people take, the, take his descriptions of things um, and don't even say they are from his description. So the most famous one is the description of Washington the night before the crossing of the Delaware, where Washington is holding little pieces of paper that say victory or death. There's probably like 3,500 books that quote that scene. I would imagine some of them in their footnotes mentioned that it comes from Benjamin Rush's commonplace books. Some of them probably just don't even do that. But there's a difference between us having that in Washington's diaries and us having that as a scene from Rush's diaries, um, a really important difference. So what Yen and I first started doing was um, looking at lists, timelines, uh, and then <laughs> in a wonderful bit of uh, coincidence, uh, this project, which had been going on for a long time, uh, to digitize all of Rush's medical lectures as part of this, uh, this other project at Penn, they had gotten the material out before COVID. <laughs> so that was the lucky thing. So they actually were digitizing it before and during COVID. So it wasn't shut down. So in the middle of our discussions about this with Barbara and Yen, uh, we talked to Mitch and Mitch was like, yeah, we're done. You know, we finished all of them and you could uh, put a link to them up on your page and explain what they are. So we were really excited that when the portal would open, it would also have access to all these documents. Uh, it took us a little while to get that up. Then um, Yen and I started talking about what else it could do. So the first two things we did, and I, I'm hoping that people on this call will have other ideas of what we can do, because basically we're, one, we're at your disposal. Two, we have, we have all this white space on the internet. We have great motivation and we have time because our first goal was to get everything that Rush wrote in its original form linked to a digital version, um, which is tricky because a lot of things Rush wrote, he rewrote, they were republished, and it's really important to know which version is which. Uh, we worked with a bibliography done by the late Claire Fox, 
uh, from Philadelphia, which is very helpful. And then since there's so much interest in yellow fever, uh, we did a whole effort just on yellow fever. And this is the thing that Yen and I did most recently. She'll talk about it a little bit more. But the thing that was cool was we said, well, okay, wouldn't it be great if students of every age could actually read Benjamin Rush's letters during the yellow fever epidemic because they were an amazingly dramatic version of the entire yellow fever story. And so we did two things that we were very happy to do. One, Duke allowed us to link to the actual handwritten letters, which they have. But I think more thrillingly, we went to the Princeton University Press, Eric Crahan, who I met through Martha King at the Jefferson Papers, and asked them something that I was certain they would say no. Um, I said, could we publish all the letters that Rush wrote from the letters of Benjamin Rush with all the annotation over 100 pages from your book and put a free link to it so students could access it? Um, and Eric said yes. So now, with, through the wonderment of what Yen had to put up because it was not easy, um, you're now able to do all that. And it, it really made us realize, like, wow, we could do a lot of things like this. And so our hope is uh, more and more people will either, one, give us the things they've already digitized, think about digitizing other things in their collections. If you have Rush materials in your private collections, you don't have to give them to us, but take pictures of them. Um, and we really want to have this portal be something that can morph into a real papers project based in Philadelphia, based at the library company, and hopefully with the main institutions uh, in Philadelphia that care about Rush, the Rush Curious, we call them. And, uh, and so um, I'm going to turn this over to Yen right now. He's going to talk to you a little bit about building the site, and then I really would love to have a conversation. All right, thank you so much, Stephen. I think you pretty much uh, summed up my whole portal. Um, <laughs> so yeah, first I just wanna say uh, thank you, Will and the Library Company of Philadelphia for having me uh, just talk about my Benjamin Rush portal and how I um, got it done. So I guess more in depth on how this uh, Benjamin Rush portal started was actually when I first applied for uh, Penn's Biomedical Library internship. So it was just my idea of having you know, an exhibit that, you know, relates to any kind of medical history topic. Um, so that was when I met Barbara Cavanaugh for the first time. And then she recommends like, oh, hey, why not do like a Benjamin Rush, you know, exhibit in a way. So that was how the Benjamin Rush portal came to be. So I will go to share my screen with all of you. Okay, great. So here we are, we're seeing the homepage of the Benjamin Rush Portal project. So yeah, basically when I first started the Benjamin Rush Portal, it was uh, everything based off of Stephen Freed's book and nothing else. So every information was um, taken from this book. So yeah, when I had Stephen reviewed it for the first time, yes, there were a couple of feedbacks, uh, but they were very good feedbacks. So um, this portal was really um, much better than ever. Um, so yeah, um, just thinking in terms of the challenges of my master's program, library information science, was, you know, the access of primary sources. And I really understood the struggle of accessing those uh, from different resources and online sources. And I've understood that myself as a researcher, because I think that primary sources are like the, the much better resources, in my opinion, than using secondary sources. Uh, where this, I think they're more opinionated, uh, to be honest. So I want to make this portal the place to easily access um, those primary sources right on the spot. So you don't really have to search everywhere um, where it's like right in front of you. So let's take, for example, that 
you are reviewing this page and you want to read one of Russia's publications. So like, uh, like say this one, for example, it will take you right to the National Library of Medicine website um, where you can just read off of Benjamin Rush's publication. And it's that, it's very simple. Um, so yes, so just a little brief demo of uh, the layout of my portal. Um, so throughout this portal, I wanted to make this exhibit very engaging. Um, I like to think questions like, how can I create a story of Benjamin Rush's life and what kind of content should I display? So I actually used the inspiration of the Broadway show Hamilton, I'm sure all of you would know, um, <laughs> to create this exhibit. And like the creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I chose key events that impacted Benjamin Rush's life from how he decided to go for medicine to how he revolutionized uh, mental health. So you can see it right underneath Rush's life. Um, you can just go through each tab just to follow the story of uh, Benjamin Rush. Um, so Stephen briefly mentioned about the yellow fever page we are at right now. Um, so while I created this page for the first time, I think very carefully about how this could relate to this today's situation we're facing, which is the pandemic. Um, so I am glad that Stephen mentioned it in his book that um, during the time of the yellow fever, there were actually some guidelines and procedures and some speculation of where the yellow fever came from and what um, were some things that uh, prevented the yellow fever. So you can definitely uh, read that off on this page. I'm not going to give you a lot of information on it. But, um, the one thing that I would be happy to show you all was the calendar that I created um, where you can access all the letters of Benjamin Rush's, uh, Benjamin Rush and Julia Rush's letters um, from Duke University. So here uh, we are seeing here. Um, so basically you're seeing all the calendars ranging from the beginning of yellow fever of August 21st to the end of um, November 11th. So let's say that you want to, you know, read a, read a letter from Benjamin Rush on September 8th, which we're at today. So it will just immediately take you um, to Benjamin Rush's letters. So for those who may know about 18th century writing, you're welcome to uh, read this on your own. Uh, I personally can't, tr I try my best to read it, but you know, it's up it's to- pretty good handwriting, you know, all things considered. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, um, it's sort of clear to me to be honest, so. But yeah, I think that um, it's, I did a fantastic job myself like just trying to figure out how to embed this into um, the LibGuide, uh, which I, I was using for um, this portal. So yes, uh, that is one thing that really stood out to me. And, uh, and the one tab that Stephen also talked about was um, the topic on abolition and race. So me personally, I was, um, a bit nervous doing this tab because I know that this topic has been a very touchy topic. Um, so while discussing this with Barbara Cavanaugh and Stephen, um, I knew I'm in good hands because with Stephen's help, uh, we were able to make this page uh, in good use. And we, we were providing as much information as we can, as Stephen mentioned before, just um, access to primary sources that were mostly written uh, by Benjamin Rush. So um, that's that. And um, so for the future, um, so since we improved the yellow fever tab and um, the addition of the race and slavery tab, uh, I am currently working on a new tab with Stephen uh, that involves Russia's role in pen medicine. 
Um, so I will not give any hints of what will be in it. So, but I know that with Stephen's help, um, I know that it will be another great tab for you all to look at. Good job. Thanks. Yeah, and we're looking for for other ideas. I mean, we will do one um, about Rush and women's education and his relationship with his wife um, and with his wife's family and the um, the writers of the Times. So some of you know that Rush's wife, Julia, her mom was a very well-known writer. Um, her mom's best friend was Betsy Graham Ferguson, very well-known writer in Philadelphia. And so uh, we would like to have a tab that just looks at the writing world uh, that Julia and Benjamin Rush uh, and other doctors from Philadelphia. I mean, there was a co-ed salon in Philadelphia during that time, which is very fascinating, uh, which is actually how Rush and Julia got together. Uh, so, but we're also looking for other ideas because basically now that we have this format, we have yen, um, we have interest and we, ha and we have space. And this is how you build towards uh, what issues to go. The thing that we have not done up to this point, and I think we're gonna try not to, is to not get involved in secondary materials um, and to, and to try to put everything up there in terms of the primary materials to let people analyze them because really it's true uh, and it's it's hard. I had you know I had a really interesting conversation a few weeks ago with Gary Nash, um, the amazing historian who's written so much about Philadelphia, so much about the revolution, so much about race. And we were discussing how do you get people to rethink things that they've read a hundred times that now turn out to be either three percent wrong or five percent wrong or in some cases eighty percent wrong. It's a really challenging process even to bring it up. <laughs> and of course for Gary, some of those things are learned from his book. Um, so it's a really big challenge to not make it confrontational, but to have a dialogue. And I think what's incredibly important about all these subjects, and of course, Rush picked every controversial subject that everybody could fight about. Um, if you want to look in the history of America, Rush probably wrote the first argument about it. Um, so most of our political arguments were well documented by Benjamin Rush. Um, so it's a really good way to think about how to not get in the fight, but to show the fight then. So we're really interested in figuring out how to do that. And, um, and also in the hopes that we eventually will be, I mean, we would love for us to have a real Rush Papers project that one day interacts with the Founders Online project, which is uh, an amazing project and um, one that I used a lot. And um, interestingly, I found out in my research that Lyman Butterfield really originally came up with the idea of what would become the Founders Online Project. His original idea for the Rush Papers in the 50s and the Adams Papers was that they would be that interactive and that you wouldn't have to go from archive to archive to read back and forth in letters, that you would be able to find them all in one place. So he sort of predicted the, what this would be like. But you know, we would like Rush to be as much a part of the conversation as the people who considered him to be part of that conversation when they were all alive. Great. Well, thank you both for that uh, fascinating introduction. And I also want to hit the point that when we're thinking ahead to capitalizing on the momentum, the good work that you two have done, and thinking ahead to a Rush Papers project, um, the Library Companies Fellowship Program is very much um, uh, being thought of uh, in, in, in terms of helping to expand upon that. And that's where those innovation fellowships come into play. And one thing that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is that our founding sponsor, Dr. Randall Miller has been very generous with his gift in a sense that every dollar that is raised towards these Rush fellowships is matched by him. Um, so it's a really great time to support those fellowships if you want us to help curate some of that context that would be secondary, of course, to the primary source material that you folks are digitizing. Um, we have a bunch of questions in, 
Um, so I'm going to try to work us through sequentially. Uh, first one goes to Bruce Goodman, who notes that um, in a lot of writings about founding fathers, early presidents, Rush really only comes up tangentially. Uh, and he asks, why is he mostly relegated to the back? Well, you know, that's like another lecture. Uh, but I would say it, it's a combination of, uh, it's, it's really what happened after he died. I mean, what I explained during this talk is somewhat part of it. I mean, if somebody had said during his life that you would be writing about all these people, especially with all the letters, it would be, they would be all together. But Russia's family really suppressed the most interesting part of his story and only allowed the medical part of his story to pro proliferate. I mean, Rush taught the first 3,000 medical students who became doctors in America, and his influence proliferated in medicine, both the things that he did that were good and the things he did that were, we're happy that we don't do anymore uh, for another 100 years. But his role in history was really quashed down, again, by his family and by Adams and Jefferson, being afraid that all the correspondence between them would be known. So it kind of was a conspiracy. And it's interesting, when you look at the Butterfield papers, Lyman Butterfield, who was an English professor at F&M, his first thing, he was asking these same questions in the 1940s. How is it possible this guy isn't, you know, one of the best known founders? Although, interestingly, at that time, the same could have been true for Adams. I mean, Butterfield's work in the Adams papers is part of the reason that Adams is now considered one of those guys, too. You know, the Adams Chronicles in the 1970s and later the, the HBO series. So John Adams wasn't quite at the same level as Jefferson and Washington for a long time, too. Um, everybody gets, you know, some people get a musical, some people get Lyman Butterfield to edit their books. Um, so far, Benjamin Rush has me and, and, uh, and a lot of people on Twitter who are becoming uh, Rush fans, which is a good thing. Uh, but it's, it, it is a really interesting story, but it, it's kind of on purpose. And um, if you're Philadelphian, you would have a whole Philadelphia reason for it because of the love-hate relation Philadelphians have with everything Philadelphian. Um, and the fact that we never got over losing the U.S. Capitol and the state capitol the same year, uh, which was, which interestingly was the year Rush wrote his autobiography. So he wrote his autobiography in the year he was the most bummed out, uh, both about the future of the country because uh, his two best friends, Jefferson and Adams, stopped speaking to each other after the election of 1800, and Philadelphia was emasculated. Um, that's the year he happened to write the, uh, this controversial autobiography. He had written it like 19, 1810. Might have been a little bit more upbeat. We have a couple of pointed questions for you, Stephen. One is from Jeffrey Yeager, who asks, is there any way to track down um, who purchased those lots from the auction of the Biddle estate? And then Max Beyer has a specific question as well, asking, what was Benjamin Rush's criticism of Washington? Okay, those are two different questions. Um, I have seen online, and I believe there exist, um, even in the Butterfield papers, uh, copies of the auction booklets with the names of the people who bought them written down. I actually, the one I showed you about the Julia Rush list of things that about my husband that drove me crazy, I actually spent a year trying to find the people who bought it because their name was on it. And the guy's son was a U.S. ambassador. So they're actually fairly well-known people. And I actually got to the ambassador's secretary and he couldn't find the thing that his uncle bought. I mean, I'm going to keep going, but um, so I think that there are a couple of annotated versions of this. I even saw one online for sale recently. So I think that it is knowable where the things went, at least because when people go to auctions, they scribble in the, in the margin. But I do think that um, it will take some doing. And uh, if anybody wanted to jump into that, I think it would be a fascinating project, not just about Rush, because these are, you know, an amazing uh, treasure of lots of things. Uh, your question about Washington. So Rush, um, 
was one of the people who in 1777 uh, listened to the generals who were wondering whether Washington was the right guy. Keep in mind that Washington, that Russia's service was in the beginning of the war. We were getting, you know, excuse the expression, our asses kicked. And so people were very depressed. It was not clear we were going to win. And uh, during the time when Rush was uh, alone because Congress had left Philadelphia and a little manic, uh, he wrote a famous letter to Patrick Henry, an unsigned letter, um, uh, saying some of the things that some of the generals had been saying. It's unclear if they were saying that Washington was unfit or whether the people he was putting in power were unfit, but questioning Washington at its darkest moment. And uh, so the letter was unsigned, and Rush asked Patrick Henry to burn it, and he didn't. He held onto it for two months. During that time, Rush and Washington actually made up. They were having an argument about how much money was being spent on the hospitals for the military, which Rush was in charge of. And uh, so, and then for some reason, two months later, Patrick Henry sent the letter to Washington. He didn't know who wrote it, but Washington was friends with Rush, knew his handwriting, and was really, really mad, and really never got over that. So. Russia's problem with Washington was that Washington was mad at him and he really couldn't get out of the doghouse uh, because once the revolution was over, the issues of what had happened during the darkest moments of the revolution uh, were moot points. And so they circled around each other. Um, Russia's mother-in-law, Annis Boudinot Stockton and Morvin in Princeton was quite close with Washington's. So I think she probably kept things together. But when Washington died, he made sure that his biographers knew about that letter and included it in his biography that was done by uh, Justice Marshall, uh, the Supreme Court Justice. So it was a it was a thing between the two of them. They were definitely frenemies. <laughs> nice use of frenemies there, Steve. Um, I've I've also got a note here from um, Rachel Hammer, our development officer, note, noting that Butterfield was not only a shareholder of the library company, but he held Russia's share. So wow. The Butterfield's involvement with this has just been lost to history because he's so well known because of Adams. He was in Philadelphia a lot. He had interactions with, you know, because at that time to do the papers of Benjamin Rush, you had to come and photograph hundreds of things and make microfilm out of them. In fact, Ted Carlson, the psychiatrist, did the same thing. I found, you know, endless microfilm in his place that had been done at the library company. Although, you know, it's still unclear. Those collections were broken up by the family. It's a little unclear what the library company got what ended up at the at the Philosophical Society, what ended up at Rosenbach, and what's still out there. Uh, because we really don't know why the brothers, why and when the brothers broke up the collection. Yeah. But it was totally broken up. So we have a couple of questions that are archival in nature. Uh, and so first is from Darren Rush. I wonder if there's a relation there. Um, Amazing coincidence. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, Stephen, how often were you able to decipher handwritten notes uh, or how often were you unable to decipher handwritten notes? And when that occurred, what did you do? That's interesting, you know, because the truth is for all the other founders, um, other people have read everything over and over and over. When I would talk to uh, Sarah Giorgini at the Adams Papers, and I heard how many people would be looking at the Adams Papers over the years, I was quite jealous because I knew that only Lyman Butterfield had looked at a lot of these letters. I mean, thank God that Benjamin Rush was not a doctor whose handwriting was terrible. So you can actually decipher much of his handwriting, which is not true of other people. Uh, the thing that I showed you, that, that thing about Grubber, that was the one page that wasn't transcribed in the autobiography, I could not figure that out. Uh, and I would like to figure it out because, again, people don't understand. I mean, the fact that Rush had a slave is unbelievably controversial and unbelievably interesting. It's also something that was not known 
until that autobiography came out in 1948. And it's only mentioned once in the autobiography. Uh, when, when William Grubber, his enslaved person, dies in 1799, he writes a little tribute to him. Um, later, a letter that he wrote about him, which was a recommendation for him, because after the Fugitive Slave Act, people that were already freed had to get a letter saying they were freed, and we, and we found that letter. And then when the letters of Benjamin Rush came out, there's actually a mistake in it. Butterfield identified an earlier person named William as William Grubber, which led generations of, of historians to say that Benjamin Rush owned a slave when he signed the Declaration of Independence, which he did not. So th these little things do add up. Um, but what I would say is, Rush's handwriting is pretty easy to read, and um, but and luckily, you know, uh, Butterfield transcribed an enormous number of letters, not just the ones in those two volumes. Um, he put out a separate uh, paper of another forty letters, and when I went in his material, I found probably forty more letters that he had annotated. So the problem isn't a shortage of annotated and well transcribed Benjamin Rush letters; it's that no one can get their hands on them. You know, if you did a digitizing process just on the letters Benjamin Rush wrote that we have transcribed, so they would all be available no matter who they were written to. That's a doable thing, and, and it would be really cool. Mm -hmm. So this next question actually dovetails nicely with that. It's from Angela or Angelica Kurtner. I hope I didn't mispronounce that last name. Are are any of Rush's account books or memorandum books available to search? Looking for yeah, to search no. Uh, so, what we're hoping is that we would like to encourage uh, the funders of the of the medical uh, um, project that's going on right now to look at Rush's at least his financial books that come from his practice as as part of what they should be digitizing and not just his lecture notes um, because they are equally important and some would argue that the lecture notes since many of them are repetitious and just for the same ones for different years uh, maybe we don't need every year of them although they're nice to have. So I think that uh, I've worked with them a little bit just to identify, you know, we were able to identify his first patient. Uh, we were able to spend some time identifying his first psychiatric patient, which was really interesting. And I definitely needed those materials for that. And we were able to track down the materials about when he bought William Grubber um, because he shows up in his uh, financial files because William Grubber is leased out to a ship where he works as a cook and Rush gets paid. So, um, all kinds of people should have access to these materials because think, keep in mind, Rush had his hands in everything. So if you really dig into Rush's, what he spends money on, you're dealing with the history of medicine, you're dealing with the history of philosophy and education, you're dealing with the history of politics, um, you're dealing with uh, the history of race. And so uh, and it's all in those materials. Um, I assume they are all at the library company, but I would say that I'm not sure how much people have dug into them necessarily to know for sure. It's, uh, it's really unclear because we have, we have used the materials we have of Rush a lot. And so people don't always know what hasn't been made available to them. And it's not always easy to go to uh, the library company, not because the library company makes it hard, just because any trip uh, to a library to have to see something. I mean, the future of all of this is digitizing everything, is digitizing history and making it available. And um, there is an enormous amount that can be digitized. Uh, from Rush, just from just from the library company collection, but from the Philosophical Society collection, from Penn's archives, from Rosenbach's archives, uh, and um, and from the College of Physicians archives. Yeah. 
So we have a lot of questions still flowing in, and there's no way for us to possibly get to all of them. So please forgive me if we don't. I'll answer fast. All right. Well, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to pivot actually specifically to stuff that relates to the portal, because that's something that people can use right now. Um, okay. so the question from Rob Haberman uh, saying, Benjamin Russ was one of the most prolific magazine authors in the post-revolutionary America. Will the Benjamin Rush Papers project or the portal include these periodical writings among his publications? Yes, not only have we already included many of them, but we have done our best to identify that they are that they are magazine writing because I do think that people confuse newspaper writing, magazine writing, medical book writing, and Rush didn't mean all of these things to be the same. For example, he wrote two pretty funny pieces um, about mania and uh, and depression that were meant obviously as, as jokes, uh, but I've seen people write pieces about them not taking them as jokes. I mean, they were, they were meant to be funny. And um, so one, we've tried to make sure that we identify which pieces were in magazines. Two, we've tried to identify the ones that got published later than they were obviously written, if that is, if that is significant, because people tend to uh, look at, at, at when things are published. And one of the things that's really challenging with Rush is that a lot of these things got published four or five times. So some of the things that Rush wrote were published in an essay collection that he published in the late 1790s. Okay. It is insignificant that they were in that book. They had all been published before and made their impact in magazines before. But a lot of people don't know that unless you sit down and explain it to them because it's, you know, chronology, I, I guess it's a stupid thing to have to say about history, but in history, chronology is important. And, um, and especially with Benjamin Rush, the difference between something that was written in the 1780s and something that was written in the 1790s or the 1800s really matters a lot. And so what we've tried to do as much as possible is identify the things that they need to know, even where they are from. Um, so those magazine relationships are quite fascinating and um, it's important in the development of how people uh, publish. You know, the publishing of magazines, the publishing of pamphlets, the publishing of books, Rush was a real freelance writer. He paid attention to the business. He made money in the business, um, partly because he saw that the doctors who came before him, like Morgan and Shippen, never wrote, and they, he figured they would never be remembered, and he was right. So he was, you know, he was somebody who was publishing to not perish, and there were no medical journals, so he was publishing in the, in the general media. Some of his most famous things were just on the front page of newspapers mm -hmm. originally, and then were captured other places. Great. So we have a question, uh, actually a comment, which I think is quite useful from Jeffrey Yeager saying, a tab with links to Rush's writings about addiction would be most timely and most interesting. There were there are many doctors at Penn doing addiction medicine, doing addiction medicine, who would love to know more about their roles as Rush's professional descendants. Uh, that's a really good idea. I mean, we have already put up links to his main writings um, on those subjects, you know, his 17... <laughs> speech at the Philosophical Society, which lays down the idea that mental illness and addiction are medical problems and need to be treated by doctors. Uh, that's the most interesting. And of course, there's an annotated version of that. I would say that um, that's an interesting idea for a project because there are things that just appear in his commonplace books that you could pull out. For example, uh, one of the things he wrote, which is so important in the early 1800s, he said, Maybe people with, with uh, addiction should be treated separately with people from mental illness, and maybe we should create something called a sober house. And he actually wrote in big letters, sober house. So even though this is only like a couple of paragraphs, those couple of paragraphs in his commonplace book are totally a turning point in the thinking about addiction. And 
one of the things that Yen has been very good about, and we've been lucky because of the digitizing, is that you can, digi you can give somebody a digital link to go right to the page in a book that's 400 pages long. So we've tried very much to do that so that when you open the link, you don't go just to the front page, but you actually go to the page that it's on. Um, I like the idea of doing a whole page just on Rush's writing about addiction, um, some of which, of course, will surprise people because one of the most famous things he wrote since um, temperance at that time did not include beer and wine um, was how much he loved wine um, and how wine you know, was the only thing that would save people from anything. It's one of the most uh, compelling arguments to drink wine like all the time and the older you get to drink even more. So I'm not sure everybody who fights addiction would necessarily find that charming, uh, but actually that is part of his writing as well. Um, but it, it's actually a really good idea for a tab, yeah, and we should do a tab on, uh, on mental illness and addiction. That would be great. Yes, definitely. <laughs> All right, um, David Sewell, uh, excuse me, David Sewell uh, asks, are you expecting um, print volumes of Rush Papers coming out of the project as well as the web? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, we're, we're working with what we have. So if it can be funded and that is available to us, um, I think that that, should, that is the part of, of any papers project. Um, although it is, it is a, uh, you know, it's a bricks and mortar part of every papers project. And I don't know, um, like, I, I, you know, I, we talked a lot to Jane Calvert, who was setting up uh, the John Dickinson Writings Project. So that's a pretty new project. And I'm not sure what in their fundraising, if they're looking to do print papers, to do print books first or, or something else. But I think it's a fair and interesting question. It will depend completely on funding. My goal, of course, would be to use the resources. You know, this is a thing that Penn and the McNeil Center and other universities in the Philadelphia area, should their history students should really want to be part of. So whether it's a bricks and mortar book uh, project or something, or something more hybrid to begin with, I think will be determined uh, by people other than me. I mean, I'm the enthusiast uh, who loves to tell Rush stories, but our goal here will be to have other people besides me uh, making those kinds of decisions if we can get the kind of support that we need to do it. Um, and I would ask David whether that's necessary for the letters of Benjamin Rush to be more included in Founders Online, or whether that can be done simply from uh, online printed material, as it has been up to this point. Of course, there are several hundred letters of Benjamin Rush already up there online. Some of them are from the uh, um, from the Butterfield book, but some of them aren't. Yeah, and I would add that the library company does have a history of publications, and uh, we would certainly be interested in potentially publishing a printed version of this once we have the fruits of these labors. So. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap things up. Um, I know that there are a lot of other questions, but I have given you in the chat um, my email address. If you just copy and paste your question and send it to me, I'll make sure it gets to Stephen. Um, and if you have other comments, you have other suggestions, drop me a line. Um, I'm very open when it comes to our public programs. Speaking of which, and, and if there's if there's enough interest to have an, a, a continued dialogue about this, I'd be happy to do it. Um, cool. But I mean, I think we'll do it in print first, and you can give them my email address as well. You can always find me online at stephenfried.com. Um, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter trying to get people to stop putting up that uh, fake quote of Benjamin Rush's. Um, and uh, so, but I would love to continue this conversation because it's long overdue. And anybody who's Rush curious, I'm happy to talk to you. I love this term, Rush curious. I'm going to be using that from now on. Well, thank you both for joining. This was a wonderful uh, sneak peek 
at a fantastic project. And for the rest of you, if you are interested in continuing learning with the library company, we have a wonderful Fireside Chats webinar series. Our next one is this Thursday at seven o'clock where we're gonna be getting first access of a publication that's coming out of the University of Penn Press called um, Grassroots Leviathan, Agricultural Reform in the Rural North in the Slaveholding Republic. Uh, that's totally free, 7 p.m., love to have you. So with that, thank you all for joining us. And Stephen and Yen, I wish you good fortunes. Thank you very much for uh, hosting this, it was really fun. Yeah, thank you, Will. Bye-bye, everybody.